If you're a Christian, you want to see your neighborhood, workplace, and city renewed by the gospel. But in today's culture, the challenges to sharing our faith or discipling someone can feel almost insurmountable. How can we effectively share our faith in spite of tough questions and misconceptions about Christianity? Today's podcast features teaching from the 2019 Missional Living Conference held at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Listen as Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin explores how we can share our faith in a way that is relevant, winsome, and true. After you listen, we invite you to go online to gospelandlife.com and sign up for our email updates. When you sign up, you'll receive our quarterly newsletter with articles from Dr. Keller, as well as other valuable gospel-centered resources. Subscribe today at gospelandlife.com. Tim mentioned earlier that the gospel rids us of pessimism. And that is good news for me because you're about to hear like 35 minutes of pure, unadulterated, very un-British optimism from me. (laughs) But because I'm British, we're going to start with Harry Potter. And if you have not read the Harry Potter books, you need to block your ears for about 90 seconds now because this is the most terrible spoiler and I would hate to ruin this beautiful story for you. But in Harry Potter and Half-Blood Prince, J.K. Rowling sticks a knife into her readers' hearts. Professor Dumbledore is the Gandalf of the series, the only man whose power for good can match Lord Voldemort's evil. But in the sixth book, a weakened Dumbledore stands at the top of the astronomy tower, surrounded by his enemies, and he appeals to Harry's teacher nemesis, Severus Snape, for help. Severus, please. And Snape kills him. The scene is devastating. We never liked Professor Snape, but we hoped beyond hope that he was Dumbledore's man, and now his betrayal of his mentor is complete. It's only in the last book that we realize how wrong we were. When Harry extracts memories from the dying Snape's mind and pours them into the magical pensive where you can dive into somebody else's past, and then we see that everything Snape has done has been driven by his passionate, hopeless, unrequited love for Harry's mother. We see Snape's anguish as Lily Potter is murdered by Voldemort and how he thenceforth commits himself to Dumbledore. We hear Dumbledore telling Snape that he is dying from the slow workings of an irreversible curse and makes Snape promise to kill him when the moment comes. And suddenly the meaning of Severus, please, is reversed. When our non-Christian friends look over at the Christian faith, they see an awful lot of things that look like snake-killing Dumbledore. They see a white-centered religion with a history of racism and scriptures that condone slavery. They see an anti-intellectual mindset and a contradictory Bible that's been disproved by science again and again. They see homophobia, the denigration of women, and a refusal to acknowledge that love is love. In this cultural moment, it's tempting for us to think that the sands are running out on Christianity, that the best thing we can do is batten down the hatches and cling on for dear life while the waves of secularization wash over us. But if that's what we think, I believe we've got it all wrong. The sands aren't running out on Christianity, they're running in. But just as our understanding of Severus, please, flips 
when we hear Snape's whole story, when we look more closely at each of these devastating roadblocks, they become signposts to Christ. I believe we have an opportunity before us right here, right now. But there are four things that we need to do in order to grasp this opportunity. We must reclaim diversity. We must reclaim the university. We must reclaim morality and we must reclaim sexuality. But we must do all these things with humility and not by watering the scriptures down, but by lapping them up. So first... We must reclaim diversity. On February the 23rd of this year, Nigerian street preacher Oluwali Ilesanmi stood outside a train station in London, preaching to the commuters as they went by. Two white British police officers came up to him and gave him a choice, go away or be arrested. I will not go away, Mr. Ilesanmi replied, because I need to tell them the truth, and Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. Nobody wants to listen to that, said one of the British police officers. They want you to go away. You don't want to listen to that, Mr. Elisami replied. You will listen when you are dead. You will listen when you are dead. And so he was arrested. What do we make of this? Are we encouraged by our brother's faith? I certainly am. Are we reminded that preaching the gospel always comes at a cost and that we Western Christians have got far too used to a comfortable life? For sure. But a black African Christian preaching the exclusive message of Jesus while white Westerners stop their ears is a little parable for the religious world today. 40 years ago, sociologists thought that the tide was going out on religion as the world became more educated, more scientific, more modern, religious belief would naturally decline. But in the last 40 years, not only have we not seen religion declining, but sociologists are now looking forward for the next 40 years and anticipating an increasingly religious world. So today, 31% of the world identifies as Christian, and that proportion is set to grow slightly by 2060 to 32%. Islam is expected to shoot up from about 25% to 31%, making it a very close competitor with Christianity. Hinduism and Buddhism are both expected to decline slightly. And the proportion of people who do not identify with any religious tradition, including atheists, agnostics, and nuns, is set to decline from 16% to 13%. The tide isn't going out on religion. It's coming in. This is surprising to our non-Christian friends. But perhaps what's even more surprising is that Christianity is the worldview of diversity. The first century Jewish man we worship broke through every racial and cultural barrier of his day, and he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, and they began at once. We meet the first African Christian in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch of Acts 8. And Ethiopia actually went on to become the second officially Christian state in the world before St. Patrick ever went to Ireland and a thousand years before the gospel came to America. Today, China is the global center of atheism. 
But experts believe that by 2030, there will be more Christians in China than in America, and that by 2060, China could be a majority Christian country. At that point, 40% of the world's Christians are expected to be living in sub-Saharan Africa. So what about in America? Black Americans are at least 10% more likely to identify as Christians than their white peers. And they pull higher on every marker of evangelical commitment, from regular church going to Bible reading to core evangelical beliefs. Latina and Latino Americans are also more likely to identify as Christians. And immigrants of color are planting evangelical churches across this great nation. So I live in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And in, in Somerville, the adjacent city, English is the third most commonly spoken language at evangelical churches after Portuguese and Creole. Some white Americans think that immigration is eroding America's Christian heritage. In fact, immigration is a much-needed blood transfusion for the American church. Now, this flips the paradigm for our non-Christian friends. When my friends hear evangelism, they envisage white Westerners forcing their beliefs down other people's throats. But when they realize that most Christians are not white Westerners, and increasingly most evangelists are not white Westerners either, the exclusive truth claims of Christianity can no longer be dismissed. When Mr. Ilasanmi said that Jesus was the only way, the truth, and the life, he was not saying, my culture's cooking is better than yours, but I was starving too till I found bread. So let's reclaim diversity. Because Christianity is the most multiracial, multiethnic, multicultural movement in all of history. Second, we must reclaim the university. In 2015, I took a good friend of mine who is an atheist Jewish science professor at Harvard to an event at Harvard in which um, N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, was in dialogue with the agnostic chair of the Harvard philosophy department. The title of the event was The Bible, Gospel, Guide, or Garbage. And after the event, I said to my friend, um, I said, I know that you think that what I believe is crazy. His then-girlfriend, who was a much gentler soul than either of us, said, oh, I'm sure he doesn't think that. I said, yes, he does. I believe that the entirety of human history revolves around a first-century Jewish man who had died on the cross and was supposedly raised from the dead three days later. Crazy, right? My friend said, yes. I said, the problem is, I think that you believe some crazy things as well. See, our non-Christian friends think that they are choosing between Christianity with all its crazy beliefs and a perfectly coherent secular worldview that does all the work for them that Christianity does for us without them having to believe in crazy things. My friends, there is no such belief system. For decades now, the idea that the world is becoming less religious and the religion is dying out has functioned in the university not just as a diagnosis, but as a prescription. It's not just what will happen, but what should happen. So what is going to happen when Western intellectuals realize that it hasn't happened? 
that the question from the next generation is not how soon will religion die out, but Christianity or Islam. And that atheism, far from being the belief system of diversity and progress, is the belief system of white Western men and communist regimes. Fang Yang is a leading sociologist of religion in China. And he says that the university is going to have to go through a paradigm shift, much like a scientific revolution, when the failure of the secularization hypothesis comes home to roost. In other words, between now and when my kids are in college, there's going to be an earthquake in the university. This should excite us, but it shouldn't surprise us. Because Christians invented the university, and universities like Harvard and Yale and Oxford and Cambridge were founded explicitly to bring glory to God. Christians have written some of the greatest literature of all time. Christians have dreamt up some of the greatest philosophy of all time. And perhaps most surprisingly to our non-Christian friends, and honestly to us as Christians as well, Christians literally invented the modern scientific method, not as an alternative to belief in a creator God, but because they believed in a creator God who was both rational and free. A few years ago, I met a Princeton professor named Hans Halverson. He's an extraordinary guy. He's one of the top four philosophers of science in the world. And Hans says that not only is it historically the case that Christians literally invented modern science, but that even today, science rests more securely on theistic foundations than atheistic ones. In fact, he says that atheism does not provide a philosophical grounding for science at all. Are there complex theological questions raised by modern science? For sure. But Christians have always been leaders in science. And Christians have always been on both sides of every supposedly science versus Christianity debate. So let's not concede science to atheism. Instead, let's find the thousands of Christian professors whom God has raised up in universities, in fields from philosophy to physics to psychology to history, and let's learn from them. Let's reclaim the university in this next generation not as a hostile takeover, but as a homecoming. Because Christianity isn't anti-intellectual. It's the greatest intellectual movement in all of history. Third, we must reclaim morality. Earlier this year, I reviewed this excellent book. Uh, It's called Atheist Overreach, What Atheism Cannot Deliver. It's by Notre Dame professor Christian Smith, and it's a serious academic work published by Oxford University Press. And in it, Smith evaluates whether today's intellectual atheists are giving us convincing reasons for their high moral beliefs. For example, their beliefs in universal human rights and justice, or their belief that people starving in the slums in Calcutta can make any moral demands on us here now. And this is Smith's conclusion. Atheists, it seems to me, are perfectly entitled to believe in and act to promote universal benevolence and human rights, but only as an arbitrary, subjective, personal preference, not 
as a rational, compelling, universally binding fact or obligation. This news is deeply disturbing to our non-Christian friends. My friends believe passionately in human rights and human equality and care for the poor and racial justice and the equality of men and women. The question is, do they have any basis on the grounds of their atheism for these beliefs? And the answer is no. For many in our culture today, biblical Christianity is a dangerous idea, challenging some of their deepest beliefs. In her book, Confronting Christianity, 12 Hard Questions for the World's Largest Religion, Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin explores the hard questions that keep many people from considering faith in Christ, tackling issues including gender and sexuality, science and faith, and the problem of suffering. McLaughlin shows that what seems like roadblocks to faith in Jesus can become signposts to a relationship with Him. Confronting Christianity is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the love of Christ with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com slash give. That's gospelandlife.com slash give. This realization dawned slowly for one of the few people who knew both me and my husband, Brian, before we knew each other. So our friend Sarah Irving Stonebrecher is a history professor in Australia. She was a convinced atheist when she went to Cambridge to do her PhD. She was a convinced atheist when she went to Oxford to do her postdoc. But while she was at Oxford, she went to a series of lectures by fellow Australian Princeton philosophy professor Peter Singer. Now, Singer is a very smart man, and he's one of the, the few atheists who, who stares very frankly in the face the fact that if we get rid of Christianity, we can no longer trade on Christian ethics. And he says that, that rather than agreeing that all humans are equally valuable because they are human, that we need to evaluate beings, human or otherwise, on the basis of their capacities. For example, the capacity for self-awareness, the capacity to suffer, etc. By Singer's calculation, a newborn infant is less morally valuable than an adult cow. As my friend Sarah listened to these lectures, she experienced what she later described as a kind of intellectual vertigo when she realized that her atheism cut against all of her deepest beliefs. She thought that Christianity was the enemy of human rights and racial justice and equality for men and women. But she gradually discovered it was the basis for those things. And so she gave her life to Christ. As we talk with our non-Christian friends, we must never imply that we think that we are better than they are. I believe that Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And we must be very real about the massive, horrendous moral mistakes that Christians have made over the last 2,000 years, including we ourselves. And yet, rather than buying into the new atheist narrative that religion poisons everything, if we actually look at the data, even in America today we find an interesting story. People who go to church once a week or more give 3.5 times as much to charity as their secular peers. They volunteer twice as much. They are half as likely to engage in domestic violence, and they're less likely to commit at least 43 other crimes. Christianity is the greatest movement for justice 
in all of history. So in this hurting world, let's reclaim morality like divers pulling treasure from a wreck. And let's flee self-righteousness like toxic waste. Fourth, we must reclaim sexuality. When Snape killed Dumbledore, all doubt in the reader's mind as to whether he was on the side of good or evil died as well. And when we stand for Christian sexual ethics, we move over in our friends' minds from delusion to bigotry. Opposition to gay marriage for Christians is equivalent in my friends' minds to opposition to mixed-race marriage. It's morally repugnant, and it puts us on the wrong side of history. So how can we turn this devastating roadblock into a signpost to Christ? When Harry dived into Snape's memories, he found not a story of hate, but a story of love. And when we dive into what the scriptures have to say to us about sexuality, we find that it's a love story too. This love song begins in the Old Testament as prophet after prophet compares God to a loving, faithful husband and Israel to his often unfaithful wife. It takes a step forward when Jesus steps onto the stage of human history and declares himself to be the bridegroom. It comes into clear focus in Ephesians chapter 5 when Paul talks about human marriage as a little scale model of Jesus' love for the church. And it rises to a full-blown crescendo in the book of Revelation when the voice of a great multitude declares that the wedding of the Lamb has come and Jesus' marriage to his church brings heaven and earth back together. This is why marriage is male and female and why husbands and wives are called to different roles. Like Christ and the church, it's a love across difference. Like Christ and the church, it's a love built on sacrifice. Like Christ and the church, it is a flesh-uniting, life-creating, never-ending, exclusive love. Marriage is meant to point us to Christ. But it is also meant to disappoint us. Because even the best human marriage could only give us a tiny echo of Jesus' love for us. And let's not forget, Christian marriage was countercultural from the first. In the Greco Roman world, men weren't expected to be faithful to their wives, let alone to pour themselves out in sacrificial love for them. It was fine for them to sleep with other women, and often with other men as well. No wonder Christianity drew more women than men in the first instance. No wonder the church has always been majority female. Far from being the epicenter of misogyny, Christianity is the greatest movement of and for women in all of history. And here's the irony. So the, the sexual revolution in the 1960s was sold to us as the liberation of women. For centuries, men had been finding ways to sneak around Christian marriage and have commitment-free sex, and now great news, thanks to the pill, women could as well. But in the past 60 years, 
despite growth in freedom and opportunity, women's self-reported happiness in America has actually declined. Why is that? I believe that part of the reason is that commitment-free sex is a poison chalice. For both men and for women, stable marriage correlates with multiple mental and physical health benefits. But for women in particular, increasing our numbers of sexual partners is actually correlated with negative mental health outcomes, including greater suicidal ideation, increased sadness, increased depression, increased substance abuse. And interestingly, a Dartmouth professor, who's not a Christian at all, did a study of sex and happiness, and he concluded that the happiness-maximizing number of sexual partners in the last year is, guess what? One. So let's not lose confidence in Christian marriage. But marriage is not the only relationship that is designed to point us to Jesus' love for us. Greater love has no one than this, said Jesus, than that he laid down his life for his friends. People sometimes say the Bible condemns same-sex relationships. I disagree. I think the Bible commands same-sex relationships at a level of intimacy that we Christians seldom reach. Paul calls us one body, knit together in love, comrades in arms. He calls his friend Onesimus his very heart. And he says he was among the Thessalonians like a nursing mother with her children. None of this is sexual. All of this is ours in Christ. And if we are going to reclaim sexuality in the next generation, we need to reclaim fierce, abiding, non-erotic, non-romantic love. I'm not saying any of this is easy or straightforward. I myself have been romantically attracted to women since childhood. If I were not a Christian, it's, it's very probable I would have been married to a woman instead of married to a man today. I'm happily married to a man, have been for 12 years. And actually, I, I'm, not kind of, I'm not actually as weird as I might sound from that. I mean, I'm, I am weird, but for other reasons. Um, <laughs> it turns out I am the most typical kind of same-sex attracted person. A woman who is attracted to other women, but not exclusively so. So it turns out about 14% of women experience same-sex attraction, but only 1% are exclusively attracted to other women. For men, it's about 7% who experience same-sex attraction and only 2% who are exclusively attracted to other men. And interestingly as well, people's sexual orientation can and does change over the course of their lifetime. Not not always, but it certainly is, is not an infrequent occurrence. And this research has been pioneered by a woman named Lisa Diamond, who's a, a professor at the University of Utah, and she is herself a lesbian activist. And one of the things she concludes is that when we categorize people as gay or straight, we're not, in fact, cutting nature at its joints. We're imposing some joints on a very messy phenomenon. We need to recognize and reckon as churches with the fact that we have not typically served our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters well. We have let our brothers and sisters shiver in the dark, 
believing that they are weird and unwanted and unloved. And if you want to pour paraffin on sexual temptation, what do you do? You leave someone alone. But if we want to reclaim sexuality in the next generation, we need to make our churches places where same-sex attracted Christians are included and embraced. Our brothers and sisters who experience same-sex attraction are not an embarrassment. They're an asset. People today are blocking their ears to the gospel because they think we're homophobic bigots. Our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters, especially those who remain single because of their devotion to Christ, are our God-given SWAT team to burst through those defenses. Because there is no more powerful way to testify to Jesus in this culture. There is no more powerful way to point to the beauty of Jesus than to turn away from your own romantic and sexual fulfillment because you believe in a better love. So as we go out into our communities with the message of the gospel... We must reclaim diversity, we must reclaim the university, we must reclaim morality, and we must reclaim sexuality, but we must do all of these things with humility. We must repent of the ways that we have allowed racism to thrive in our churches. We must repent of the ways in which we have abandoned the life of the mind. And we must repent of the actual homophobia that has infected our churches for years. We need to take a hard turn toward the scriptures and a hard turn away from ourselves because Jesus is not a relic of the ancient world. He is our modern world's best hope. Thanks for listening to today's teaching. We pray that it challenged you and encouraged you. You can find more resources at gospelandlife.com. Just subscribe to the Gospel and Life newsletter to receive free articles, sermons, devotionals, and other resources. Again, it's all at gospelandlife.com. You can also stay connected with us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter. This talk was recorded in 2019. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.